You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. It might surprise people when I say this, but I would say that um, cobalt is currently running under the radar, which might get people a bit uh, scratching their heads. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's episode, we'll be hearing the insights of Paul Robinson. He is a director with the CRU Group. And the CRU Group is a global leader in commodities and research and analysis. And they provide this research to manufacturers, uh, investment managers, and even miners. So Paul, welcome back onto the show. Really, uh, really a pleasure to be back again, Bill. So thanks for inviting me back. All right, let's jump right into it. Uh, China. What's your take on China? We often hear China and commodities go hand in hand when we talk about forecasted future demand. Can you give us your analysis here? It, it, it's always an important driver in the in, in, in the global commodity market. I think there are some headlines out there that make it even more important um, right now. And, and I have to say, of all of the teams I speak to, our Beijing and Shanghai teams, I'm speaking to them on almost a daily basis about what's happening there. And Maybe I'll boil it down into four core challenges I think there are for the Chinese economy today. Um, the first, you know, the big ones is the risk of some sort of market contagion um, driven by unsustainable debt, particularly in the construction sector. And the sector can manage it, but it's about that, you know, the risk of it spilling over into a broader access to international funding in particular, you know, driven by Evergrande and other, um, other construction um, companies. Alongside that, and it's intertwined with this, is that in itself would be manageable, but there's real uncertainty in the rest of the world over understanding Chinese policy right now. So we know that President Xi uh, wants to try and change the balance of responsibilities. We know that he wants to try and re, uh, re, um, move some of that, re- that, that wealth from the super rich into the middle classes. We know that he both wants investors to learn about uh, more discipline, but he doesn't want to kill the construction sector. We've seen similar things in, in, you know, in attitudes towards now private education. We've seen similar in attitudes towards um, you know, uh, people competing against SOEs. And it's that uncertainty combined with that sort of trigger of unsustainable debt saying, well, we don't really know how this is going to unwind because we don't understand how much they're going to support the sector. That in itself has led to an immediate slowdown in the construction sector, which does impact uh, commodities. And again, there's no, there's not enough confidence that um, that uh, that that's going to be um, stimulated like it always has been done previously in China. And that leads to that uncertainty and a drag on commodity prices. Now, all of that is managing manageable. The risk, from my perspective, and the thing that I keep talking to our China team about, is does this broader slowdown, does this uncertainty over policy, does this uncertainty over potential wealth redistribution, does it lead to a slowdown in Chinese consumer confidence? And if we see that, that is the most worrying signal for me that we might be in for a multi-year downgrade in sort of China prospects. We're not there, so I don't want to alarm everyone listening into this. But again, for me, it's all of that can be managed. It's just whether it starts to spill into that consumer confidence, because through every economic cycle for the last 15 years, the Chinese consumer has stood by the government. The government has said, carry on spending. You can trust us. They've continued to spend. They've continued to, um, to trust the government. We've never had a crisis of consumer confidence in China. And that would be the thing that worries me. 
Um, just to re-emphasize quickly, you know, the government has, the Chinese government has lots of options to fix the debt problem. It's just a question of how their policy evolves and what they do about it, and that's the risk. And as I say, I don't think the Chinese middle class can lose out here. And if they feel they're losing out, that confidence wanes. That's my concern. That would change what is a relatively small impact on our commodity sector today into something that would, you know, warrant far more, um, far more concern and far more research. Has the CRU group looked at all at if China invades Taiwan, what would that do in terms of disrupting China's relationship with the West and particularly the U.S. and how that would impact commodity markets? Um, to be honest, we try to um, we try to avoid making commentary on some of those geopolitical decisions um, purely because there's not a lot of value we can add. If we if we end up with one of those sort of tail risks, it, we're not going to be worrying just about commodity markets. We're going to be worrying about stock markets, forex, uh, trade, uh, you know, geopolitical escalations. So um, it's it's in in its yeah. If it happened, it would be terrible. Um, it would have wider implications across any investment vehicle. So it's, it's not something we spend a lot of time looking at specifically. What about uh, COP26? Uh, what effect will this have on the metals and commodities market? Um, really good question. And, and I need to be careful here because, of course, uh, COP26, COP26 took part in Glasgow. So um, I've been subject to a lot of um, press and coverage from my own UK government, who, of course, have told me it's a great success. Um, I think there's a, a couple of points I'd make. So firstly, you know, speaking to my colleagues in the US, speaking to my colleagues in China, it is worth remembering that COP26 doesn't necessarily have the same impact on the Chinese population, on the US population, on the, uh, on the, um, on the Indian population that it does have on the European population. So I think we put that in context. I think going into COP26, or sorry, coming out of COP26, there's certainly been some disappointment over last minute compromises. So both China and India are seeing, uh, being seen as having um, watered down some of the texts surrounding, um, surrounding um, um, coal, uh, coal abatement. And the other thing we've seen, which I think is relevant to our sector, is we saw an inability for the large vehicle manufacturers, particularly Toyota and Volkswagen, to sign up to a 2035, 2040 zero emission target. Um, so I think they're the two sort of downsides. I think Ford and Chrysler both signed up. Um, I'm pretty sure that they both signed up to that initiative. Um, what does that mean? Um, it means actually that maybe long-term predictions are a bit uncertain. So, you know, would I expect to see uh, EV um, transition forecast maybe being um, pushed out a little at the sort of 25, 20, 20, 25, 30? Probably, but very little impact in the short term. Similar for coal, you know, you can argue the, the benefits or not over whether you phase out or phase down coal. The reality is, you know, under a Republican government and under um, and, and under a Democrat government, coal generation continues to decline. The reality is that um, reliability or availability aside, I should say, not reliability. You know, the, the capital cost of building renewable technology is now um, competitive with um, with carbon fuels. So that decline is going to continue. What it probably means for those at the short end of exposure to commodities is what we don't have 
is we don't come out of COP26 with that immediate boost to the green metals, the transition metals, saying, okay, we've got that firm action that ratchets up those prices by another 10, 15% in the short term. What it probably means is the pathway doesn't change, but markets will need to see more um, and investors will need to see more evidence of that change before you see that sentiment being reflected in price and before you see that next next um, next jump up, if that makes sense. Yes. Paul, I was recently with a realtor on a larger piece of land here in Michigan uh, that I was looking at purchasing. And I was kind of shocked. The realtor said to me, she said, and if you want with this track of land over here, this portion, you could sell carbon credits. And I was like, wow, realtors are even pitching carbon credits to potential buyers of land in Michigan. You know, what is CRU's group's perspective on the carbon credit markets and specifically how could the small guy like me profit from this uh, burgeoning market? Goodness me. So, so I'm not an expert. Uh, a, a, um, I'm not an expert on land sinks, though I was aware that again, land sinks become one of those ways to profit. Um, I'll make a couple of statements and then think about how I think about how you profit from it. Um, the first is we should all be, you know, if we believe that policies are going down the uh, down the route of getting the market to pay for um, uh, zero transmission and, and uh, carbon abatement. That means that current technology, carbon prices are going to increase three or fourfold. And that is needed to incentivize the investments into alternative low carbon technology. Now, if it's subsidized, you don't need the carbon prices at that level. If it's, if it's, if it's being funded by, um, by the industries itself, you're seeing a massive increase in those carbon prices. And that will have all sorts of economic and um, social repercussions. So there's both a massive cost burden and opportunity for investors there and you need to make your own view as to when that's going to happen and if that's going to happen now if that's going to happen how do you profit from the trend um, maybe two or three things i thought i think about and we think about in ciu so the first would be seeking out commodities and seeking out portfolios that are most impacted negatively or positively by supply price disruptions that can be caused by the carbon price itself or don't forget can be caused by carbon content you know border adjustments so um, aluminium has a um, you know aluminium has a um, has a very low carbon footprint part of its cost curve and a very high carbon footprint part of its cost curve. And so seeking companies that have that natural carbon hedge, you might call it, or a natural low carbon footprint, and thinking about how they may be able to extract the value that has been inherent in that part of the portfolio um, historically, and maybe through preferential access to clients, maybe through um, you know consumer premiums, maybe very simply through being able to access certain um, geographic markets that you simply will not be allowed to if you have a high carbon um, equivalent. And then the final one I'd say um, is maybe look at related sector industries. So I think in the commodity world, but. What needs to come through from a technology perspective? What needs to come through from a regulatory perspective? You know, who's going to build the carbon accounting software? Who's going to build the tracking, the monitors? So maybe again, for some of your listeners who are more on that technology focus, there may be areas that they know about mining technology or broader, um, you know, broader um, um, SaaS-based um, um, platforms that are now going to grow exponentially because this is a new need for businesses to both lower emissions through technology and account for it. 
So they're my three thoughts on where to profit from it. Land sinks as well, of course. Yep. Well, I'm outside of Detroit, so I got a good pulse on what the big three are, at least through people I talk to, engineers. A lot of, I have a lot of friends that are engineers for like GM. And one of my engineering friends, he's complaining about the chip shortage. Like they literally have cars mostly built in these lots they have to rent before they can get the, the semiconductors in, and the chips into these cars. Uh, what's your forecast here? How long will this continue to impact the market? So this isn't an industry we cover directly. So we're probably talking to the same people, Bill, if I tell you the <laughs> truth. But what we hear from, from automakers um, in, in the US, but also in Europe, is you know the optimists say it's going to be the second half of 2022. The pessimists say it could be 2023. So there's still an unwinding there. Part of that is capacity and just the, you know, the delay in terms of building out new capacity. And part of that is tied to what your view is on, um, on, on unwinding the, um, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the transportation and um, logistics issues that we've got on a global basis at the moment. What is clear is that, um, you know, particularly in Europe, you've now got a slowdown in the economy that's directly linked to this. So I think it's Volkswagen, um, BMW, and I think it's Renault. They've all had to temporarily idle European plants in recent weeks. It's all starting to impact the, um, the, uh, the availability of vehicles, very similar to, the, uh, to, to, to what you've just talked about. And um, the other thing I'd add, just as, a, um, as, as an aside to show you the reality of it in, in Europe as well, is the second-hand car market, you know, those those automobiles are now trading at prices higher than they were pre-COVID levels. So there's now a premium, which you know, is an element of COVID and nobody wanted to travel on public transport, but it is also an element of that reality of the shortage of cars. So to get back to your question, H2 2022, possibly 2023, if you're a pessimist on global logistics, push it out to 2023. If you're an optimist, bring it maybe forward on 2022. Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well capped capitalized, has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. Paul, I bought my first new car ever. I always buy a used car, let somebody else take the depreciation. But I bought my first new car a few weeks ago because the used car with 40,000 miles was more expensive than the new car that I, that no I bought. No way. Yes. Is okay. it the same way in Europe? Are you seeing? Because that's what, what I experienced here. Um, I've not bought a car for three years and I've never bought an used car. So, um, but I would have done the same as you. So I, I don't know, but I do know that they are trading now, uh, you know, higher than they were because the car I bought two, three years ago is now worth more than it was, despite having, having put the clock up, which, you know, I don't know how to realize that value, but it made me smile. Yeah. And don't you think things like that are hard to predict from an analyst perspective, right? You can't oh. even predict it's a total black swan, right? It's a total black swan. Um, you, you don't quite understand the, you know, nobody quite understands the stress that's in supply chains until something goes missing from it. And however much you predict, you just don't know. Nobody knew that chip, 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 uh, the chips would have such a fundamental impact. And again, if I, you know, it's, it's a bit of a side story. 
but there are now um, the, the BBC, our national news programme, flew, uh, flew drones over abandoned airfields and, um, and parkways close to our biggest, uh, our biggest container port terminal in the UK. And these are, these are normally empty and they've got tens of thousands of containers that are just sat there because they've run out of room and they can't get the shipping capacity to get it back to where it needs to be in China and Asia. So again, I'm, I'm, a, very, I'm a great believer in the visualization of that really makes you understand, gosh, how are we going to get all of that back to China? It's a real visualization of why it's, it's, it's a 2022, 2023 issue before it gets resolved. Paul, a lot of our listeners uh, that listen to a podcast like this, they're contrarian by nature. They speculate in small junior mining stocks. So we're always looking for the next under the radar commodity. Might you point yeah. us in the direction where you're seeing an under the radar commodity that might be poised for an upturn? I will, and it, it might surprise people when I say this, but I would say that um, cobalt is currently running under the radar, which might get people a bit uh, scratching their heads. And, and what I'd say is there hasn't been a lot of price movement despite the continued deluge and the continued uh, positive headlines in recent months around cobalt. Um, and from our perspective, so when we look in the medium term, when we look over the two to five year horizon, we see the fundamentals supporting um, supporting an increase in the cobalt price. It remains one of our top picks in that sort of two to three year horizon. Um, why? Again, there's nothing that's going to surprise people here. Strong EV battery demand. We think it's going to triple consumption in the sector in the medium term. Um, actually, in the short term, we've seen a pickup in industrial activity, like many sectors that's um, lifted um, cobalt demand. There continues to be an underinvestment in supply to meet these needs. And again, you've got this, um, you've got this challenge of um, either it being artisanal based or being quite concentrated amongst a few large players. And again, I think going back to our previous question on the, um, on the emissions, um, you know, if we broaden that out to ESG more widely, a good quality mid-tier cobalt producer that's coming from a, uh, an ESG-friendly region, you know, that's got to be attractive to the Chryslers, to the Fords, to the Volkswagens of the world, because that ESG issue and the um, you know is, is going to come out on cobalt supplies. Um, so if I'm that positive and all the news is there, why is it under the radar? Basically, I think investors understand the story, but they're a bit deluged and they're a bit tired and they need more evidence in the physical market. And so I think the next sustained price rally needs to come with that evidence, needs to see with that pickup in, um, in, in battery materials, because the story's there. But it's, it, we've heard it so many times now, I'd say it's under the radar because we've probably forgotten it or we see it now and just delete because it's, you know, we've been hearing it for the last year. Aren't some uh, battery manufacturers trying to get cobalt out of their batteries, though, in terms of their composition? Isn't that a growing trend? I, I've seen some headlines. Uh, I haven't studied it in depth, but is, is that something to be concerned about? Um, it is something to be concerned about, I think, at, a, um, at an individual level. Um, our tripling of consumption in EV battery demand has something like a one-third reduction in the intensity of cobalt in that as well. So we, we see that trend. But the growth uh, and the volume growth far outstrips the, uh, you know, the intensity of use on a battery. Okay. Uh, I say aluminum, so we pronounce it a little differently. But yeah. uh, when you look at the aluminum market, sorry, I, 
It would be hard for me to say it the way you say it. Uh, aluminium, I believe you said, but uh, I can do aluminium or aluminum. Oh, aluminum. Okay. Yeah. It's been down about 20% in the past month. Uh, what do you foresee here? Yeah. So um, aluminum, I think, I think, you know, is where I started and I started in the power sector. So it's, you know, it's, I've been disappointed by aluminum so many times now, but it's still my love. Um, so I have to say, you know, I think first of all, why did it, why did it get to such high levels? It got to such high levels predicated on restricted power in China because of their curtailment of coal uh, coal-fired production. And so some of that sell-off in the last month or so has been just questioning whether China has that resolve to restrict its aluminum um, production as much as maybe we were predicting and others were predicting. And again, you know, um, there's, a, there's a short and long-term story behind China. If China's facing uh, short-term economic contraction, it's not dogged with its policy. If it's facing short-term contraction and it can restart coal-fired power stations and aluminum smelters and produce an extra million tons of aluminum to help the economy, it will do that. That doesn't mean it's gone away from its long-term story of wanting to reduce its reliance on basic exports to grow, but it's making a, a short-term tactical move before it will revert back to its long-term trend. And at the moment, we're more on the side of you've got that tactical trend. So we've got our deficits falling by about 600,000 tonnes. So we still have a deficit in the aluminum market next year, but nearer you know, nearer to um, one and a half million tonnes than two million tonnes. Um, and therefore, we've got prices recovering, but it's maybe a, a, a one to two year story now in terms of recovering from the losses it's made in the last month or so. Um, the only other thing I buy is, you know, again, Aluminum's never had a demand problem, and there is no demand problem going forward here. Again, it's 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 um, it's uh, going to continue to grow at above normal, above average rates. Um, your call on aluminum really needs to come down to your call on China's uh, desire to um, restrict, uh, you know, additional units from its aluminium smelters. Tins had a good year. Do you foresee that continuing to happen? Yeah, um, and and to be open with your um, uh, with your listeners, you know, Tim's had a better year, far better year than I predicted when we spoke in February. So you know, you have to do a mayor culpa here. We were um, we were um, we were predicting, I think, somewhere close to twenty thousand dollars a ton, and um, you know, it's nearly a forty thousand dollars a ton. So not a great forecast back in February. I apologise. Um, we think a lot of it is justified by fundamentals so we've seen supply issues in china we've uh, you know they are starting to be unwound and we're starting uh, but we've also seen demand upside from the renewable sector so a lot of it is 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 fundamentally justifiable what we didn't predict and this isn't just restricted to tin is we didn't uh, predict the massive uh, uh, reduction in stocks, particularly at the LME metals warehouses. And we're down at a level now where this isn't just a reflection of strong fundamentals. It's like we've talked about already. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a reflection of the inability of the global logistics to move metal to the places where uh, in, in, in place of most need. So we think there's more hidden stocks and therefore prices are being supported by investor sentiment that's looking at those um, warehouses and saying, whether it's real or not, on a global basis, it's absolutely re real on a um, on a regional basis, and um, and therefore that justifies the higher prices. Um, so implications for tin and other metals. Before I come back to tin, is wide regional premiums. 
um, particularly where global supply and consumption are, are distanced, as we're seeing um, in some issues with China. Um, again, stock issues, I'd say just be wary of uh, anyone that's running their models off um, days of stock and just you know look at the underlying fundamental storyboard, um, because this is an attractive environment for investors to hold stocks, particularly if they're holding them in the right geographic region. And an eventual unwinding of this again late 22. So for tin specifically, we've got um, we've got supply returning. We think that we'll start to see tonnages exporting out of tin, uh, sorry, out of China in meaningful amounts from the beginning of next year. If you see that, that's the signal to lower tin prices, and that'll be your lead indicator to say that we've now got that turning point in tin. What's your current forecast for platinum and palladium? Uh, so um, platinum, we think, is going deeper into surplus this year, and therefore we see a market that's largely unta- un- unchanged um, through to 2023. So, you know, not so interesting. Uh, a longer-term story beyond 2023, we start to see a, um, a, a, a pickup in um, a pickup in prices. So, not a lot to say there. Palladium clearly linked to the um, semiconductor um, chip shortage and the impact on auto vehicles. So again, we've actually downgraded our price outlook there. Um, we're looking at something in the region of sort of $2,500 an ounce um, going into next year. Um, and um, again, not a lot more to say there. You know, I, I think you have to link it to your, uh, your view on the availability of new cars. What we should see for those that focus in the short term is we're always surprised by pent-up demand. And when that release is there, you know, there will be a pent-up demand for new cars. There will be a, 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 an immediate pickup in Palladium. But again, that will then disappear as things normalize. 2022 story. Okay, Paul. So you're talking to a lot of gold bugs on this show. Are you going to confirm our thesis that gold should be going up in the next year? Uh, I, I think we did pretty well on gold last year, and I'm afraid we remain. Uh, sorry, when we spoke in February, I'm afraid we remain range bound at the moment. So again, the bugs, the bulls will um, point to a rise in inflation expectations. Um, but you know, I, I'd argue that you should see some of that in the price, and we have seen some. You know, we have seen some rebound in um, in um, recent days. Again, I think from a um, from a financial position, you, we're seeing net longs on COMEX. We're seeing good demand for gold coins. You know, we're seeing that shift in investor sentiment, and we've seen strong demand in China and Indian markets. Um, and central banks are net buyers of gold. But if this was a fundamental only market, you know, you wouldn't have so many people. And my job would be a lot easier. And it's, you know, <laughs> there's an element of sentiment there as well, and we can't, you know. Yes, there's a risk of inflation. Yes, there's different views on how how long-standing that's going to be. But we are still transitioning from a um, a, 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 a global economy that was in trouble to an, a global economy that is, um, you know, is has rebounded very strongly. Looks like that's going to continue. Certainly going to be a lot more investment dollars coming out of uh, Joe Biden um, and, and the investment, and and that just acts as a cap on gold as a as, as a safe haven. So we're still, you know, we. I'm really sorry to disappoint, but you know, gold pretty much as it is and pretty much staying range bound as it is for the next, you know, the next 12 months. And what about silver? Could industrial um, demand outweigh investment demand and silver could outperform gold? What is your analysis here? So, um, yes, there certainly could be a short term pickup in silver next year. So, um, again, we've had some recovery in silver Q4 over the last months. 
We think the two things that are restricting that price recovery becoming more pronounced is, number one, is the industrial demand. And I sound like a broken record. It comes back to supply bottlenecks again. So I think you, your, your, your pricing view has to be linked to that um, deep bottlenecking. Um, and, um, of course, um, again, we've talked about interest rates. So fundamentals are pretty strong for the next couple of years. We've got a, you know, base metals. We've got investment in base metals coming through over the next couple of years in zinc, copper, nickel. And again, um, certainly on the zinc side, lead zinc side, that's leading to more silver units coming into the market. So from a fundamental perspective, you know, we're looking beyond 2023 before we see the fundamental supply demand balances supporting the um, silver price for significant increases. Um, the rest of it, again, comes down to sentiment and, um, and releasing that bottleneck. Because when, when the supply chains are sorted out, certainly commodities like silver, there will be a, a short period there of, um, of, of, um, of, of um, quite good price increases. Do you see copper staying above $4 a pound next year? Um, we do. Um, so, um, you know, we look at COP. Again, copper remains the poster child commodity. It links natural resources to broader climate concerns. Um, we all know about the potential demand upside from electrification of everything, um, not least, again, uh, infrastructure in, in, in the U.S., um, uh, we, we see very little reason for prices to come below $4 a pound. Um, again, fundamentally, we think that the market's broadly balanced. Uh, if, if we were pushed, there's probably a small surplus, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of tons over the next two to three years, because again, we've got this slew of new projects coming on, um, in a, in a, normal market and i don't really know what i mean when i say that you know that might put some negative pressure on copper but because it is the poster child and because there is such a great uh, investment story behind that medium-term copper story that's not you know that shouldn't um stop the copper price staying where it is um and at least staying at above four dollars a pound and again maybe pushing that um, that sentiment higher Again, if you see real, um, you see real copper consumption units um, as a result of the uh, the U.S. Um, you know the U.S. infrastructure investment. What about nickel? Do we see this market swing into a surplus? What's your expectation for nickel in the coming year? Yeah, so um, we see a great demand story, but we also see a great supply story in, in nickel. So um, demand, I think we've got demand increasing by something like. 17, 18, 19% this year. And, and again, based mostly on EV demand too, right? Uh, no. So that's what people do. So, so on, on the overall numbers, it's based on stainless again. So stainless it's, steel, okay. it, it's, it's, it's the nickel going into stainless. We've probably got higher percentage increases within EV, but it's still a smaller part of that sector. So it's, you know, the EV is very much supporting it. Um, we've also seen disruptions on the supply side, and we even saw a slowdown in Indonesian MPI growth. So that's helped support the nickel price this year. Um, but, you know, 2021, we're going to see, um, you know, we're going to see significant increases again in Indonesian MPI uh, supply. Um, so we're going to see, uh, really, we think this is probably the, um, the peak for nickel prices as they set right now. Um, supply side, fundamentally, as I say, because of that Indonesian supply growth. And on the demand side now and on the sentiment side, again, coming back to COP21, 
uh, sorry, COP26, because we didn't get that strong endorsement across the European Union, the US, India, and China, it's not going to cause prices to retreat, but it doesn't provide that impetus to have that next push in, um, in EV sales and um, the battery metals in particular. And again, the, uh, the, infrastructure, uh, the infrastructure plan in the US, again, we should see that leading copper prices and aluminum prices and even steel prices for construction before we see it on the nickel, cobalt, lithium prices. Because, again, the view is it's going to go more into that basic infrastructure than into the, um, the EV sector. So it's a great sector to be in. It's still, you know, it's still uh, these prices, um, the, there's money to be made. And again, on the long term outputs, looking within that portfolio, if, you, if, if you're on stocks rather than on, uh, or equity rather than the, the commodities themselves, again, starting to investigate the difference in both from an ESG perspective in terms of either sustainability or in terms of emissions and looking to see how, you know, are there players in there that are undervalued because of the nickel price, sorry, undervalued because of the nickel price and undervalued because they don't, you know, because investors don't necessarily realise the uh, the differential that that carbon footprint or um, or um, or, um, or um, geographic location could have to that price going forward. Does Do that make sense? It does make sense. And don't you think yeah. it matters more for nickel miners than some other miners? Um, I think, yeah. I, I don't think it matters more for nickel miners. Uh, it depends what you mean by that. I think nickel miners worry about it more and need to realize it more because they've got this behemoth called the Indonesian MPI sector. So it's more of a, if you'd like, maybe maybe answer it a different way. Um, it was the, the, the nickel miners, uh, if we want a nickel industry beyond Indonesia, this is an area where we need to start thinking about where do we want our nickel from and how much are we willing to pay to support a global nickel industry and not become too reliant on one geography or one type of technology. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. And last sure. commodity here. Thank you for your time, but zinc, where do you see yes. zinc going up or down sideways? Um, so we've got, um, we, we're positive in the short term. So we've got, again, we've got disruptions. We've got um, issues with uh, North American and Chinese zinc markets. We've got further tightening of refined metal markets. Um, and we've got particularly in zinc, uh, again, particularly in North America, we've got those super high metal premiums at the moment because you simply can't get the material into New Orleans um, and, and dealing with, um, you know, with logistical issues. So um, remain very strong this year going into next year. Um, probably back end of 2022, uh, things start to unwind. So we see the refined market switch into deficit 2022, 2023, but then concentrate started to build. So it, it's a good story for another 12 months. Beyond that, um, uh, we, we start to see things normalizing. Um, I think if we don't, and again, maybe my finishing comment, a lot of this is linked to those logistics. If the logistics don't sort themselves out into the in the next six to twelve months, we're into real damage into the global economy, and we're into real damage into national economies because you know these um, these businesses can support their workforce and they can support their um, production at running at 60, 70, 80% only for so long before you start to make decisions to either relocate or to make semi-permanent changes to your, to your workforce. So it's something that really does need to fix itself six to nine months time. If not, 
And that's when I personally start to talk to our economics team and say, is there, is there any lasting damage here beyond COVID? Is there now an infrastructure and logistics supply chain damage that we need to be thinking about for the global economy? Paul, please share uh, for listeners that are interested, what does the CRU group do? Uh, do who, who do you serve and how can people get in touch with you? Uh, thank you for that. So CIU, so you can contact us on um, www.ciugroup.com. We're a metals mining fertilizer research house. So we do everything from discovering the price of steel tomorrow when we underpin the uh, NYMEX hot roll coil um, steel contract, all the way out to supporting uh, junior miners and investors and um, others exposed to that sort of 30-year horizon. Should we build this nickel mine? What are the undermined market fundamentals that, um, that would support that uh, support that nickel mine? And helping people raise capital by offering the market forecast that support that. We're global, so I've got great colleagues based in Pittsburgh and across the US, based in Santiago, in Australia, in Singapore, in China, in India, and hopefully you see that in some of the global outlooks we um, uh, we we uh, we provide. And Two last points, you know, firstly, we'll serve anyone with an interest in the market. We're not, uh, you know, we're, we're not prejudiced one way or the other. And the second is none of us take positions and the company doesn't take any positions. And I like to keep it quite simple. When we get it wrong, it's because we miss something. It's not because we've got any, any, any other views out there and that, that independence um, we hold to very dearly. And as I say, do mea culpas when we get it wrong like Tim, but hopefully give you enough thoughts and give your audience enough things to think about. And if I've given them one or two things to go away and just check out or think about or reconsider, then I think I've done my job for the day. Yes. A very insightful conversation. Thank you for your insights, Paul. And we'll touch base with you in about six months or so. Yes. Yes. Well, if I'm invited, uh, invited back again, I've got enough right. And, and it's always a pleasure to speak to you, Bill. And it's always great questions. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors, and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.